Hello everyone, it's Angela and welcome back to my channel. Today we will have a special guest here on the channel, Dr. Jack Hunter, visiting lecturer from the University of Chester. Jack Hunter has published extensively on the topics of um, extraordinary experiences and anthropology of the paranormal. And today we will talk about a very special topic, which is, does magic exist? Is magic real? So stay tuned if you want to find out. Hello, Jack. How are you today? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm okay. Are you, are you in Bristol now? Or... No, I'm in Chester. Oh, you're in Chester. Yeah. yeah. In a borrowed office. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> Are you liking it there? Yeah, it's good. It's a nice place. It's close to where I live, so it's easy to get to. And there's a lovely department here. All different branches of religious studies, including my weird paranormal side. Yeah, yeah, I've been there. There are very lo lovely scholars working in the Department of Theology and Religious Studies at Chester. So, yeah, it must be good to be working there. <laughs> it is, it's nice. <laughs> So today we are talking about the topic of whether magic exists and mm -hmm. is magic real. And it is mainly based on an article that Jack has published on the Journal of the British Association for the Study of Religions, which is titled Between Realness and Unrealness and tackles this topic. And of course, you will leave everything in the info box. Um, this article and other publications will be listed there. So of course, do check them out. So the first question that I'd like to ask Jack is, is magic real? Does magic exist? And how can we answer this question as academics from a scientific academic point of view, we may say? Mm, and that's a difficult question to answer. <laughs> that's why I'm asking. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's, there's a few different ways that we can think about magic. Um, we can think about it from the kind of practitioner's side of things. So there are people who practice magic, you know, as a practice with rituals and, you know, all of those kind of things. And we can definitely say that that exists, 100% exists, because we can go out and we can directly observe people doing it. But then there's this other side of magic, which I suppose is magic. We could think of it as magic as a phenomenon or magic as a thing that might exist. And that's when things become a little bit more tricky. Uh, a little bit more difficult to answer because there's a, a kind of within academia there's a real um, kind of aversion almost like a taboo against the possibility that things like magic or the supernatural might be real and uh, I think you know dealing with these things as academics we've got to be able to you know confront this issue head-on so that's what my work has really been about so trying to answer the question whether there, whether magic is real or not I would say yes <laughs> I think magic is real, but it might be real in, in more complicated ways than we usually would like to give it credit for. Because I think that magic is embedded within wider networks of, of sort of social and cultural, so social and cultural factors, but also in kind of like deeper kind of ecological factors as well. Um, so yeah, I think magic exists, but I think that it's probably a little bit more complicated than we usually give it credit for. Mm. How would you define magic, by the way, so that we can know where, what we are talking about? Good question. Well, that is a good question. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I tend to think about magic in terms of, um, of parapsychology. So the idea, if you know anything about parapsychology, parapsychology is the, the scientific study of phenomena that are usually labeled as psi, that's PSI. And that refers to things like telepathy, uh, psychokinesis, um, different things like that, clairvoyance. And there is good um, experimental evidence for the existence of these kinds of phenomena. And people have been researching them since, you know, scientifically and rigorously since the, the end of the 19th century. So within parapsychology, there's this whole body of evidence that demonstrates that there is statistical, you know, statistical evidence that these things exist, that we can influence uh, random number generators and things like that, or that we seem to be able to pick up um, messages telepathically in some way. So I think we can't divorce magic the idea of magic from the wider research that's going and that has been going on in parapsychology. So there seems to be something very real. But the problem is, parapsychologists have tended to ignore, like I was saying before, this wider social and cultural context. And I think that's where disciplines like anthropology and religious studies and sociology have got something extra to add to this debate, you know, to situate psi phenomena within the real world. So my definition of magic would probably be, you know, as a phenomenon, it is basically psi and the possibility of spirits. And then as a practice, as a, as a thing that people do, magic is the attempt to kind of harness those abilities and put them to, put them to use in some way. Mm. That's a, a brilliant answer. <laughs> and I think one that most practitioners would agree on. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> so... Can you tell us more about your research about the existence of magic? Um. Yeah, my research, um, my doctoral research was on spirit mediums in Bristol. So I wasn't specifically dealing with magic, but I was dealing with that very much related concern of the reality of spirits. Mm. And, you know, thinking about whether spirits exist and um, how we could go about you know, telling whether they actually do exist as ethnographers but also tackling the problem of, you know, how do we incorporate our own extraordinary experiences into our, our writing? So I started off researching these mediums in Bristol. Um, initially, I did research with um, spiritualist churches. I would go to their uh, meetings and sit there, and I had a couple of interesting readings from um, mediums who were visiting. But I wasn't able to build up the kind of dialogue that I wanted. I couldn't get deep deep with the people at the spiritualist church because they seem to, the congregation seemed to change all the time. And it seemed as though, you know, people would go there on a whim one week because they wanted to, maybe they'd had suffered a bereavement or something. So they'd go and they'd try to make contact and then maybe they weren't successful. So they wouldn't come next week. Mm -hmm. So the congregation was always changing. Um, so I decided that I needed to find somewhere that was a little bit more kind of like permanent and rooted, maybe with a smaller group. And by some kind of a weird coincidence, I stumbled across this group called the Bristol Spirit Lodge. Um, and they were literally about 20 minute walk from where I was living at the time in Bristol. So that was handy. <laughs> and um, basically what they did and what they still do, although they're based in Clevedon now, they would develop trance mediumship. So they would have mediums who would come. Initially, they were just friends of the person who set up the group. But then later, as the group kind of gained respectability, more mediums would come in. And they would develop their trance um, in a kind of a safe, a safe environment, basically. And each week, the mediums would come back, and their spirits that they can that communicate through their bodies would kind of 
um, engage in dialogue with sitters and do all sorts of things like that. The other thing that they were trying to do was to develop um, ectoplasm, mm. which is uh, an interesting thing. I don't know if you've seen Ghostbusters, they talk about ectoplasm in Ghostbusters. Yeah, yeah, I know what it is. <laughs> um, so that was interesting. And that, so they, they were kind of developing two different strands. Um, they were developing trance mediumship on the one hand and the spirits that communicate through the trance mediums. And then they were trying to develop, develop physical phenomena like ectoplasm and all that. So my job then was to go in as an anthropologist and to try to understand what was going on <laughs> and, you know, why, why they gather every week to do this, to do what from the mainstream seems like, you know, something that's totally imaginary or, you know, an illusion or whatever. And what I found was, um, right from the very first seance that I attended, I myself had some strange um, anomalous experiences, I suppose you could call them more extraordinary experiences. Um, the very first seance I went to, the medium was sitting in the, in the cabinet, which is a kind of like a curtained off corner in the in the room and um there was the red light because they, they use red light because ectoplasm is light sensitive so they don't want to you know endanger the medium by having bright lights on and you could see the medium clearly and as she was going into her trance state she would close her eyes she was sitting there in, in this semi gloom and i saw appearing over her face a kind of like a green mass that just slid down really slowly I've described it before. It looked kind of like a, it was like a bald Chinese monk kind of face. Oh, you know, that's the impression that I got. And retrospectively, you know, thinking about it, it's quite a stereotypical kind of. You know, if you, if you re look into spiritualism, you find all of these you know descriptions of um, Oriental masters and all of that kind of stuff. So that was quite interesting. But I kept it to myself. Um, I didn't mention it to anyone else in the room. And then when we went out back into the, we, you know, after the seance, you'd go back into the house and they'd have a cup of tea and a biscuit and things like that and talk about what they'd seen. And then independently, two other people in the room said, um, did you see that green face appearing over the mediums? And I was like, hmm, this is interesting. Some kind of, it's almost like we had a hallucination because it certainly seemed to me like, you know, it's like a hallucination. I didn't think that this face was actually there, but I still, I experienced it. And it was also verified by two other people. And that was the very first seance I ever attended. So it opened up this whole realm of possibility that, you know, extraordinary experiences are really the reason why people do these things. It's the reason why people come every week to develop uh, mediumship, uh, to have seances and all of that kind of stuff, because they do, in those circumstances, have weird experiences. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're genuinely paranormal or anything like that. They could be you know, hallucinations or whatever, but at the very least there's like an experiential reason for, for these practices. So that was my gateway in. And then I started to do other various kinds of uh, participatory research and, and developed a little bit of mediumship myself and had a freaky um, oh, cool. hand, hand possession <laughs> experience. Which you was did. Good. Um, but yeah, so it was interesting and it opened up the possibility that I have to take the paranormal seriously. You know, people are having, um, if two or three people are hallucinating the same thing, then it kind of suggests that there's something, you know, something else, something weird going on there. So my whole body of, of work so far has basically been trying to make sense of these experiences and how I can talk about them, um, you know, sensibly, um, 
and academically, in a scholarly way, I suppose, situate those experiences within a wider um, discussion about religion and paranormal. Mm. That actually links very well, very well with the next question that I'm going to ask you, which is, can you talk more about the approaches that the scientific community has used um, to tackle extraordinary experiences and magic? Yeah, well, um, mediumship is a really good example because there are loads and loads of different um, explanatory frameworks that are applied, you know, from a mainstream perspective that almost try to it's almost as though they're trying to explain it away. So I'll give you a couple of examples of how mediumship gets explained in the academy. The first one is along sort of social functional or psychological functional um, lines. So the idea with social functional explanations is that, you know, um, or of mediumship is that mediumship performs a, a function for the, for the group. So, you know, it provides people with a sense of community, um, and all of those kind of things. And a psychological functional perspective would be that it kind of, um, you know, it helps us to deal with grief and those kind of things. So they're kind of the mainstream standard explanations and they totally rule out the possibility that there might be, you know, a genuine paranormal or a real magical reality underlying it all. Um, actually what they do is something called bracketing, um, which is a, a kind of a common approach in the social sciences. And we can take this right back to Evans Pritchard and as an anthropologist, Evans Pritchard basically said that the question of the reality of spirits and the paranormal isn't something that social scientists can answer. So because of that, it's something that we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't ask the question. So we should bracket it out. Um, but I think that bracketing is also placing, is also making an ontological assumption um, because you are deciding as a researcher which parts of the of your experience are able to be explained in naturalistic terms and which parts we don't want to touch. So you're already starting to break the experience apart when you start to think like that. And I think when we do that, when we put those brackets up, we're already losing a part of you know the, the complexity and the depth of it. But we'll get back to that in a minute. <laughs> Another um, explanatory framework is the psychopathological uh, explanation which basically explains mediumship as a form of pathology, you know, um, mental illness or, or whatever. Maybe also we could bring into that ideas about hallucinations and things like that. And again, they come with this implicit assumption that there can't be anything genuinely paranormal or magical, um, you know, because they, they, they're built from a kind of a materialistic framework. And actually, I think that this materialism underlies a lot of the research that we do in the humanities and social sciences, even though we don't necessarily, you know, we might not necessarily be thinking along those terms ourselves, but the underlying kind of ontology or worldview of academia is, is a materialist one. So again, my research has been trying to find ways that we can move away from this materialist, underlying materialist ontology and explore lots of different possibilities. Um, I digress again. <laughs> Another way that mediumship is explained away, and quite commonly, is with a cognitive approach. So the idea is that mediumship is basically, or the experience of mediumship is more or less like a misinterpreting normal, natural cognitive processes for something supernatural. And, you know, the, a good example is the work of like um, Stuart Guthrie and the idea of um, animism as a, a kind of innate cognitive faculty that we all have, um, where we can identify predators and things in the in the 
the trees and in the wilderness or whatever. And that's what kind of predisposes us towards perceiving spirits and things like that, even though they're not real. So yeah, these are the kind of mainstream approaches that are applied, but none of them take seriously, like I mentioned before, the possibility of genuine parapsychological phenomena. Very few social scientists or anthropologists have been interested in parapsychology. So I think, you know, there is a body of evidence there that suggests that at the very least, there's, there may be something more going on in these situations than these mainstream reductionist approaches that kind of give it credit for. Why do you think there is? Why do you think there's this reductionist approach going on? I think there's a deep-rooted desire of the humanities and social sciences to see themselves as you know, hard sciences, um, to, to basically to fend off the, the, the criticisms of mainstream science that it would be you know, woo or, or whatever to entertain the possibility that these things could exist in some way. So I think there are deep entrenched materialist things going on in the social sciences. And yeah, we're still feeling the kind of, even though we've gone through that whole process of, you know, escaping from ideas of developmentalism and evolutionism and the idea that some cultures are more primitive than others and all of that kind of stuff, even though on the surface we've gotten rid of all of that, at the same time, we can't, or so, social sciences can't help but kind of try to maintain the status quo. I try to keep the materialist ontology in place. Mm. So that's why I think we have these problems. And the positivist one. <laughs> it is. Yeah, it goes back to the positivists. Mm. You know, that the only kind of evidence or the only kind of knowledge about the world that has any relevance is knowledge that can be empirically verified or measured. You know, <laughs> measured, exactly, quantitative stuff. When we know from our experience of the world that most of the most important things to us you know, our feelings and emotions and all of that kind of stuff, the qualitative things, um, we can't measure them, but they're nevertheless real. And I think the paranormal and magic, you know, although parapsychological experiments can detect very small statistical probabilities, you know, and suggest that there is something real going on, for the most part, the paranormal and magic are actually more, more like emotions and feelings and things like that than objective um, objective physical phenomena, although sometimes they cross the line, and that's what makes the paranormal so interesting. Mm. If that makes sense? Yeah, yeah, it does make sense. I was wondering whether we can um, fill the gap between these scientific approaches and a more inclusive um, study of magic and the paranormal. Um, I mean, since the since the scientific community has always measured these kind of things or studies these kind of things in a more quantitative approach, is it possible, do you think, to study them from a qualitative standpoint and still maintain um, academic credibility? Uh, yes, I think that mm. we can. I do, one, here's one thing that I really like the idea of. There's a psychologist called Charles Tart, and he came up with this idea of state-specific sciences. This is a really cool idea that you can ha you can have um, sciences that are kind of dependent on your state of consciousness. So, for example, uh, a kind of science that you did under the influence of LSD would be completely different to the science, the kind of science that you do under, um, you know, your normal consciousness conditions. But no, 
nevertheless, both forms of science are still, you know, they're still employing the empirical, empirical methods, they're still using experience to find out about the world, but they can be radically different. Um, and I think that this is the kind of thing that the social sciences needs to kind of get its head around, is that social science is a different kind of science to Natural know, biological, science, yeah. hard sciences, um, that we need to develop new new ways of thinking about things that don't try to reduce everything down to the hard sciences. And just because we're using, we might be using different methods and different kind of theories doesn't mean that we're not doing science, we're just doing a different kind of science. Um, and I think that the sooner we kind of get our heads around that, the, the greater the progress we'll be able to make on these, these kind of borderland areas. Mm. That seems about right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And also, uh, you normally talk more about the paranormal rather than magic. So do you feel there is a difference between the paranormal and magic or the two are related and how so? Yeah, I think um, the way I use the paranormal generally, I use the term because I quite, I quite like the word paranormal, although in academia... It's not it's, really liked. <laughs> people don't like it because it suggests, the, again, it suggests the possibility that there's more going on than our academic models kind of allow for. And academics don't like that because they want to have a good, solid picture of the world. So I use the word paranormal in the sense that it was originally intended to designate phenomena that, um, are, that are current, uh, currently, at least, beyond um, current scientific understanding. And I think that you can lump all of that magical stuff into there, you know, into magic as a phenomenon magic as a thing, not necessarily the, the practice side of things, but, you know, telepathy and all of those kind of things. So that's the way that I use the term. And I think we need to reclaim it as uh, social scientists because it was originally intended as a scientific term. Mm. Um, it was put forward, it kind of evolved out of um, the term supernormal, which was coined by Frederick Myers, who was a classicist um, and a, a kind of like a pioneering psychologist as well as a founding member of the Society for Psychical Research. And they, the reason they came up with this term supernormal and later paranormal was to distinguish it from kind of like religious, um, religious explanations of miracles and things where they would basically say that, you know, it was the, it's, it's God that's created this, it's God that's caused the miracle. And these guys in the 19th century, they thought that they could, you know, they wanted to be scientific and they wanted to be rational and they didn't want to rely on these old stories, you know, of, of God or whatever. They didn't want to rely on religion for their explanations. So they developed new terminology to bring all of that stuff into the domain of science. So the term paranormal itself, like I said, it is a, a scientific term. It was intended to be used, you know, within the academy. And it's only through popular culture and all of that kind of stuff that it's kind of, it's had its reputation uh, besmirched. Mm. I do remember that one of our first conversations at the conference of the BASR a few years ago, it was about this, this topic. Yeah. <laughs> I was, I think, asking you why had you called um, paranthropology, had you used the word paranthropology in, your, right. uh, in the journal you're uh, the editor for, if I yeah. remember correctly, yeah. Yeah, well, again, it's because I, I want to be, be upfront mm. about this stuff. And I don't, I don't want to be kind of like trying to sneak it in through the back door. You know, the science and academia and all of that stuff, it should be open and, 
you know, happy to investigate pretty much anything that is put on the table. And I think that for too long, this thing that we has been labelled as paranormal has been neglected. And really, you know, I agree with people like Jeffrey Kripal that, you know, if we, if we really want to understand religion, you know, as scholars of religious studies and things, then we need to get a grasp on the paranormal as well. Because it's kind of like, one way that I think about the paranormal is kind of like, um, it's like the untamed, the wild essence of religion. And then when you get religion, it's basically like those ideas are kind of crystallized and they, they become in kind of like uh, coded in, you know, doctrine and things like that. But the paranormal is like wild magic. It's the, wi the wild stuff that still exists out there. Um, and we need to be able to embrace it and engage with it on its own terms without reducing it. I don't know if I've answered the question there. I've yeah, gone yeah. off on a tangent. <laughs> I think you did. I was thinking that, yeah, of course, you also find these uh, kind of experiences in, across different religions. So it is important, I think, for religious studies to address it and not, and not just bracket it out, as mm. uh, you were saying before. Yeah. <laughs> and for religious studies to be aware of this, you know, empirical, the empirical data that there is on, from parapsychology, because mm. we don't, you know, when we do our introductory religious studies course, we very rarely, you know, are introduced to parapsychology or, or the experiments that have gone on with mediumship and mm. telepathy and psychokinesis and all of that kind of stuff. And really that's like the, it's like the, the bones and the muscles of religion, isn't it? Mm. I mean, miracles and all of that kind of stuff are built on those kind of psi principles. So if we don't have any understanding of that, then we're not going to get very far with trying to understand, you know, even mainstream global religions which ultimately have their source in this wildness so yeah yeah and also it's interesting that um you know normally you don't really find uh these aspects um of the uh of extraordinary experiences for example in the in journal articles or other publications but when you go on conferences and you get close to this scholar or this other scholar who's had uh, ethnographical um, experiences on the field for several years, mm -hmm. they will likely report something of the source, but then you realize, yeah, but this was not mentioned in in your publication. So it is a bit like, it's, it's a part that is, it is just assumed that you should exclude it from your work, from your academic work, which is, a bit bizarre i think yeah, but it is still the way it is at the moment but hopefully uh... <laughs> and that was part of the reason why i set up the journal paranthropology because i realized that a lot of anthropologists um, with anthropology is my kind of background a lot of anthropologists have had these kinds of experiences but they don't want to talk about them they don't have the kind of the platform to talk about them say you published um your experience of seeing a ghost or something in you know, one of the big mainstream academic anthropology journals, well, you probably wouldn't even get it published. That's the thing. So there needs to be a platform where people can talk about this stuff. But the, the thing I was most interested in was how this, this, this tendency to ignore the paranormal, even though people have paranormal experiences, even anthropologists, goes right back to the very beginning of the discipline. So you've got mm -hmm. people like E.B. Tyler, um, you know, he's a founding father of anthropology, well into animism, you know, coined the term, all of that stuff. In all of his writings, he's assuming this developmentalist perspective where, you know, it's primitive 
and it's already been superseded by rationalism. But at the same time, he is going out into Victorian London and attending seances and things. Um, and in his private diaries, which were released in, like back in the 70s, an anthropologist, uh, historian of anthropology came across them. And he's saying, like, I don't have an explanation for these phenomena. It seems as though something genuine is going on in these seances. And he had seances with, you know, some of the leading mediums of the Victorian era, like the big names, you know, even um, Kate Fox, one of the, the first mediums, you know, founders of spiritualism. So it's just interesting that it gets ignored. And I think it, it, it goes right back to that issue of, you know, is anthropology a science or is it something else or is religious studies a science or whatever? People don't want to, they don't want to open up the possibility for critique. And um, that's not a good place to start from. <laughs> yeah, and maybe this also affects our work when we are on the field doing uh, field work as anthropologists. Because since when people know that you are doing this kind of work from an academic point of view, they sort of assume that you are judging them to begin with before even entering their space or participating in whatever ritual it is. Yeah. Um, people that don't know you, um, but they just know that you are an academic researcher, they would just think that you are there to judge and consider them lunatics. So mm -hmm. I did have this kind of experience, for example, in my field work, and that is mostly based on this assumption that as a scholar, you are just supposed to believe to have that ontological standpoint regarding extraordinary experiences and magic and these kind of things. So it is also somewhat affecting negatively our fieldwork and our relationship to the informants and participants in our research. Uh, well, that is until they get to uh, understand their um, know us better i guess <laughs> yeah. because we are more accepting perhaps than others but actually all all the anthropologists and scholars that i know in the field are very open and then acceptive of everything <laughs> um, yeah it's true it's all there it's just bubbling away under the surface and you know it's it's about time that we started to take it seriously i think yeah, it's like um, we are portraying this kind of idea that we are only considering the, the quantitative aspects and we are bracketing out uh, the extraordinary experiences. But actually, you can tell by talking to anthropologists and, and ethnographers that that isn't really the case with, um, with scholars that are doing this kind of work um, nowadays. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's said, even using, uh, sorry, even using terms like extraordinary experience, it, it kind of is separating these experiences out from the rest of everything mm -hmm. else that goes on in society. So, you know, when we talk about, um, we talk about magic and all of those kind of things, and even going back to Evans Pritchard, people like that, they were saying that we can't separate magic or the supernatural from the life world of these people. Um, there is no distinction. It's the same with extraordinary experience. We call it extraordinary because it seems to stand out. But for the people who have those experiences, it's a fundamental part of their, you know, the way they understand themselves and the way they understand their place within the cosmos. So it's, it's kind of arbitrary to separate extraordinary experience from everything else that we study as social scientists. Um, so, yeah, I think it needs to be it needs to be recognized as a fundamental kind of element of, of human whatever it is, human life.
Mm. Yeah, I, I guess as a as a last question, it's more uh, I don't know something that I that I wonder. <laughs> uh, do you think from your field work field work experience that any person can develop mediumship or other um, abilities, magical abilities of this sort? That's a good question. I think um, I think most people probably could if they put their you know put their effort into it and you know wanted to develop it. There's one thing that that they say in within the spiritualist movement is that everyone basically is a medium. Um, it's just a matter of training. But at the same time, there are also and there have been you know throughout all the history, magic or religious history, there are individual people who have a, or seem to have a special gift. And we see this in parapsychology as well. There are certain people who are, you know, like um, really good, <laughs> really good at doing these um, parapsychology experiments, really good at getting um, remote viewing hits and things like that. So there also seems you could even look at things like uh, shamanism and, you know, how people are. Some people are kind of born into the role of a shaman through a family lineage, whereas other people come into it spontaneously. There's different ways that we can kind of come into practicing magic. But I definitely think that some people are perhaps, you know, from the very beginning, um, more gifted than other people. But that doesn't mean that we can't all develop it, just we might find it more difficult than others do. Yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, would you like to uh, give us all your contact details? Where can people find your work and um, how yep. can they contact you if they want you? Yeah, well, you can find me on Facebook quite easily. Um, I've got an official page on Facebook. So if you search for Dr. Jack Hunter, then you'll find that. I post all my kind of updates and news and new publications and things on there. I've also got a website, which is jack-hunter.webstarts.com. Mm. And again, it's just, that's basically like my online CV. It's mm. got everything that I do. I, I put it up there. So all the interviews I do and... Um, new articles and books and things. Yeah. Um, for those who might be interested, my most recent book is Greening the Paranormal, mm -hmm. which is an exploration of the overlaps between anomalistics, so the study of the paranormal in all of its guises, including you know anthropology, religious studies, but also parapsychology and crazy things like cryptozoology, all of that fun stuff. Um, the overlaps of that stuff with ecology and the way that um, the science of ecology understands the relationships between living organisms. And it's got, um, you know, big relevance to the stuff that's going on at the moment with Extinction Rebellion and, you know, Greta Thunberg and all of that climate awareness that's in the popular kind of zeitgeist at the moment. So it kind of taps into that and explores it, but from a paranormal angle. Mm. <laughs> um, and I'm also, my thesis will be published next year, um, which may be of interest. I'm also working on another edited book at the moment with Diana Espirito Santo about um, mattering the paranormal. So how um, science and technology metaphors have, uh, have kind of played a role in the manifestation of the paranormal. But my particular emphasis is on um, how organic analogies, organic models might be a better fit to understanding the paranormal than technological models. But that might be something for another day. Mm. That's very interesting. <laughs> Thank you very much, Jack, for for this interview. It was really, really interesting, and I'm 
uh, I hope that uh, you liked it. <laughs> so, so if you like this video, smash the like button, subscribe to the channel, leave a comment down below so that uh, we can engage into a conversation regarding the matter and stay tuned for all the academic fun. Bye for now. Thank <laughs> you.